0: And welcome to this week's episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. We are live each week with a new episode, and today I'm delighted to welcome Pamela Paul. Before we meet Pamela Paul and have the pleasure of speaking with her and fielding your questions, I want to remind you that you're invited to join our growing community simply by going to our website at graymatter.show, and that's gray with an E. Pamela Paul is a columnist, a journalist, an editor, and an author, as well as a much-celebrated children's literature expert and I might add, a devout bibliophile. Her writing has appeared in Time, The Economist, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, New York Times Magazine, and Vogue. And for nine consecutive years, she was the editor of the New York Times Book Review. Until in 2022, she moved to the opinion page of the Times as one of its regular featured columnists. She also founded and has served as host of the weekly book review podcast. Her eight published books include How to Raise a Reader, co-authored with Maria Russo, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet, Parenting Inc., that's like incorporated, The Starter Marriage and the Future of Matrimony, Pornified, which is a book about pornography, and My Life with Bob, Bob's Bob is book of books. We'll talk about that perhaps in the course of this hour or so. And let me extend a warm welcome to this week's special guest, Pamela Paul. Good to have you with us.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And I, I noted in an article recently that you were referred to in your former incarnation as head of the New York Times Book Review as holding the position of king. So there's some gender fluidity. You give up a lot of power here to write and write about what you want to write and uh, are happy about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a very different kind of job, um, pretty much in every way. If you are staying within the same general news organization um, and same Field uh, in my previous job, obviously I was an editor, and I ran a desk um, at the New York Times, the books desk, which included not only the book review, the Sunday book review, but also the news coverage of um, publishing and and uh, the world of books generally. Um, and then I went from that, which is within the newsroom to the opinion section, there's a kind of church-state divide within the New York Times between the two, um, and went from full-time editing and managing to full-time writing. So it's pretty much night and day, um, and uh, and it's, a, for me at least, a very nice change.
0: Well, I'm not going to ask you what's on your nightstand, but I do want to ask you about... Uh, well, what-
1: you can. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm happy to talk about it.
0: Well, I want to get to what you're reading, but I want to think first pursue a little bit about this job that you're at now. Because you know the podcasts I do and the broadcasting I've done through the years, one of the joys of it is just pursuing interest and curiosity in just about anything. And you can do that. I mean, I'm looking at some of your... Opinion pieces, and one is on a Victorian writer, and then one's about William Dean Howell's novel, bringing it up to date. Uh, so there's the literary side of things, but then you're writing about digital time and you're writing about uh, you know, gender identity and so forth. And so it ra- raises that fascinating question in my mind, especially with that kind of range and eclecticism where ideas come from, where you decide to kind of plant your flag.
1: Oh, I mean, I, well, first of all, I should say that after 11 years at the Times, um, Uh, all at the book review, in the newsroom, you really can't express your opinion on anything. That's part of the job. You are um, meant to sort of be behind the scenes and fairly neutral um, in terms of points of view. So after 11 years really of not having any opinions, including very often uh, not being able to share many of my public opinions about the books uh, that we were covering because uh, that was really the job of our reviewers and our critics, I have a lot of opinions, startup, <laughs> and um, and so um, I, I've never really, uh, you know. Look, I'm only a year or so into the job, but thus far, I feel like I'm never uh, deprived of multiple ideas. And sometimes it's just figuring out which one to home in on on uh, in a given week. I mean, even. The ability to write about books now, um, which I did not do when I was running the desk because I felt like um, it, I don't know, it seemed a little odd to assign myself um books to review. It's That, that might just be me. Um, previous editors of the book review did assign themselves books, um, but, uh, but I didn't. And so now I can write about books. And obviously, they're not book reviews, but I can take a book subject and turn it into the subject of a column. So, for example, recently i did that with a new book and with an old book in the last uh month or so i wrote about a new book called red memory by tanya branigan which is looking at the way that uh the chinese are suppressing and altering sort of distorting the memories of the cultural revolution and that was a new book from norton but then i also went back and looked at a 1991 book um called Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby by Stephen Carter, who's a professor at Yale Law School. And that book I had read when it came out originally, and then I reread it last year um, and then read it a third time um, really as a kind of run up to the Supreme Court's uh, now decision on affirmative action, just to kind of look back at that book. And I honestly could write about books almost every week if i you know if I wanted to um there's often there are often more books coming out uh that I can, you know that I can keep on top of that I would love to write um about in the column so that's just one source um and then because as a columnist really the entire world is is open to you as a subject matter um you know, you can look to other aspects of culture. I've written about film, about television, about theater. Um, and then, of course, politics, ideas, academia, education, um, technology. Like, those are some of the, the kind of broader areas that I'm most interested in. Um, and I, I honestly don't know... Um, how one could run short of ideas to write about, given everything that's going on in the world.
0: You have to feel passionate, because I was, for example, delighted to see the name Stephen Carter. Uh, And I guess that goes back to your days as a student at Brown. Uh, You were writing about Clarence Thomas in conjunction with that. So you have this big frame of reference, and you can write about just about anything, but do you need to feel sort of, well, a certain type of vitality, I imagine, but passion about what you're writing about?
1: Yeah, I think you need to feel um, curiosity, certainly in a subject matter. Um, You need to have a point of view. You need to feel, um, you know, sometimes passion is the right word. Sometimes it's just have a a strong viewpoint. Um, You know, sometimes it's not emotional, it's intellectual, or it's um, it's, uh, occasionally ideological. Um, But I think that you know the word that i i guess i fall back on is engagement um which was a word at the book review that i thought about with reviewers they needed to engage with the book you know it 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 was really need to wrestle with the book and i feel like if you're engaged with the world or engaged with something going on in the world then that is really what you require to write about it and to hopefully get the reader engaged. So it might not always run to the level of, of, of passion, although I do feel passionate about a lot of things, so much as it feels like this is something that um, I think is important or interesting or raises questions that might uh, similarly, you know, do the same thing for readers of The Times.
0: Well, you're always engaged as a writer, and yet in some instances uh, you probably ruffle feathers and get people upset. And I'm thinking, I guess you said this particularly in writing about your atheism, uh, influence of Christopher Hitchens perhaps, a mutual friend of ours, uh, no longer with us, alas, but also that you've written a good deal uh, about gender identity, and in fact we get to writers again, uh, uh, sort of defending um, the right of... uh, the author of Harry Potter, to say some things that she said that really got people very angry. When you get into that kind of a mode, it's different, isn't it, than just sort of writing a piece that's reflective and you're engaged and you want to write about something that's a general idea? Like Moral Panic, for example, which is a recent column of yours. Uh,
1: I mean, I think there are different modes of uh, colonizing. Um, And some of them are very, uh, you know, it's interesting, some of them really have almost disappeared. Like, I really admired Russell Baker. And I was looking at a um, uh, an old collection of his, I think, from 1962 called No Time to Panic. And of course, he wrote The Observer. That was the name of his column in The New York Times um, for many decades. And you look back at those columns, and no one writes like that anymore. No one, no one. You know, it was like walking down the street and I saw this and that and often just, um, you know, capturing a moment or writing snippets of an imagined conversation or a real conversation, something overheard. And that really never happens anymore. I I miss that kind of writing, but I don't know that readers are necessarily open to or or want that kind of column anymore. I um, as much as I admire it and and have enjoyed it. It feels sort of passe. I think more columns today, um, I think th- the closest you can come to that is kind of cultural observation, which I've done on a few occasions. Like I wrote about White Lotus and really just kind of raised questions. There's not really an argument that I'm trying to forward there. I'm not trying to always persuade someone. I don't think that that is always necessary in a column, although there is, of course, that form, the persuasive or argumentative column. I, I think for me, I also really like the column that gets uh, readers to think about something or reconsider something, um, maybe change their mind, or at least get them to ask questions. And that's often something that happens in a cultural observation column. But it's true that if you are going to make an argument Um, Or write a persuasive column. If you don't upset anyone, then you haven't done your job because uh, any issue of importance is going to have people disagreeing about it. And so if the group that fundamentally disagrees with you and is not open to changing their minds or their minds just haven't been changed by you then if they don't get angry, it's kind of like, well, did I say, you know, did I write just a bunch of kind of mealy-mouthed mush? Um, If you don't provoke a reaction, um, then you might not be saying something that's necessarily worthwhile, you know, when you're making a a strong argument or a case. Um, So you kind of have to recognize that that is part of what comes with the job. I mean, people have very different opinions. And um, if you challenge some people on an opinion that they have, often they're gonna get upset. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things too about writing a column these days is that in the olden days, where you and I come from, You know, you would get letters to the editor, but um, and this was a chapter in 100 things we've lost to the Internet, which is letters to the editor. When you used to write a letter to the editor, right, you would often you know, let's say you read something in the morning paper and you fulminated over and you said, you know, I'm going to write a letter to the editor, right? And then, then let's say 90% of the people who have a reaction had that thought, I'm going to write a letter to the editor. And then maybe 50% of those people actually sit down at the typewriter and start writing a letter to the editor. And then maybe 30% of those people then actually finish it and then 20% of those people actually put a stamp on it, you know, put it in an envelope and, and put it in the mailbox and send it off. And then it, you know, arrives four days later and an editor looks at it and goes through it, decides whether or not to publish it or not. You know, there's a whole like a period in which you had many steps along the way, many moments to pause and say, hmm do I really feel that strongly about this before you know I send a letter to the editor like does it is it worth my time and energy that I need to have my reaction out there and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't that's very different now where you're you know you don't need to write a letter to the editor I mean, many people do but it's much easier you click a button and you email it off um i remember the first and only letter I've ever written to the editor um, was to the New Yorker shortly after they introduced the option to email it, and it was such a low lift. I thought, okay, and I sent off a, a letter to the editor. It was in response to a piece by Jeffrey Tubin about Al Gore fundraising in temples, and I thought that it kind of raised um, this sort of vestiges of you know fears of a yellow peril in America that there was some kind of you know problem that. Al Gore was raising money in Buddhist temples, whereas we have no problem with our presidential candidates raising money in, you know, churches or synagogues. And I thought that it, it seemed like there it was a, this sort of prejudicial element there. Anyway, I sent it off and to my shock, it got printed. And uh, it was almost like, oh, my God, I didn't mean for like, I didn't <laughs> mean to make that big a deal out of it. Um, and that was the last time I did that. But of course, now, People can comment on the article, they can send emails, they can tweet, I guess now they can thread or whatever we're going to call that the verb for, you know, putting something on thread or they can do a TikTok or they can go on Facebook. So there are many, many, many ways to react and to react very quickly in the heat of the moment. So if something you write um, inflames people, You hear about it much more often. And then, of course, we know algorithmically social media favors the negative and the angry and all of that because that's what drives engagement on their platforms and makes them money. Um, So, you know, you get a lot more blowback. I don't know that it necessarily reflects any real difference in terms of how readers are affected, but it does tend to... I think, elevate the most agitated and extreme reactions in a way that, you know, you didn't used to get back in the days when Anthony Lewis and Russell Baker and, you know, um, earlier columnists were just writing their thing a couple of times a week in the New York Times and then, you know, only really hearing about it if a letter to the editor ended up printed on the page.
0: That's why I love doing talk radio for years because you get an instant response, you know, but now you get it in social media too. So it's a different world we live in uh, than what you call the older days that you and I may identify more with or that we came from. But the clickbait phenomenon has always disturbed me because you write a column defending J.K. Rowling and talking about some issues which are very volatile now, radioactive, one might say. And as a result, you get abuse. I mean, you get verbal abuse from people who don't like the opinion and feel that, you know, You're betraying in some way uh, the ideals that they associate with trans identity. You're called a transphobe. You're called much worse than that, in fact, because you say something that is a position uh, that could be argued in a civil way and in a good debate way, but isn't anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's become a particularly, I think, toxic and polarized debate. But the truth is that I think many liberals like me uh, have these point of views, and um, I think I'm probably speaking, for a larger population than, um, you know, critics at the extreme would like. Um, And so the most effective way to silence people is to, you know, try to intimidate them and try to, uh, you know, try to threaten them in order to prevent people from airing points of view and honestly that's the most illiberal thing that one can do in a society that, that um, supposedly espouses free speech and among liberals I think who have long prided themselves on um, our openness to debate and to giving um, people a voice and allowing for reasoned discussion over kind of ideological silencing so I feel good about the writing that I've done, and um, don't want to let anyone ever say that I don't have the right to speak my mind.
0: Do you feel good about the way the New York Times has uh, essentially uh, supported you or not supported you? The reason I ask that is because of what happened to Barry Weiss. We don't want to get in the necessarily uh, into that whole case, but you know, to some degree, she. Went out on a limb and expressed some things that were not really within the paradigm of what was expected by particularly people on the left or what would be characterized as woke people. And there was a good deal of shaming and there was a good deal of consternation that resulted.
1: Well, I wasn't on the opinion page when Barry was there. Um, but I, so I can't really talk about what happened with her, but I feel that, I mean, I know that the Times hired me knowing full well that these are the range of opinions that I have. These are the the subjects that I plan to write about. I didn't want there to be any surprises. And uh, when I raised my hand and said, hey, I want to do this, I'd love to be a colonist, I was very clear about that. And they were excited to have me on the page. I think I represent um, a um, liberal position and an interest in particular subjects and a point of view that isn't on the page already among other columnists. So there's a wide range of, um, of views and backgrounds and experiences among the uh, regular columnists at The Times, and I Felt like my voice, like my views um, were not necessarily being articulated. I love reading people who I disagree with, but I wasn't reading anyone that I really agreed with um, or was writing about the things that I cared most about. And um, so when I said these are the things I'm going to write about, these are my political opinions, and this is how I arrived at this place, um, they, you know, they hired me uh so uh, so I do feel um supported in doing that work. That's what I was hired to do.
0: Well, let's talk about essentially the reputation that you deservedly built by writing books that in in many instances were really i would say in all instances, in fact, were well researched and got a good deal of attention deservedly. Um, I'm I'm struck by sort of going back and reflecting on your work uh, in in this context. Do you go back and assess your work? Is really the question that I'm getting at? Because you wrote a book, for example, about marriage early on, mm-hmm. a very personal book in some ways, um, and the subtitle was "The Future of Matrimony." Now that was written almost a couple more than a couple decades ago, and. Do you go back and think, was I prescient about marriage? Or you wrote about pornography at a time when pornography was not as invasive, one could argue, in our lives as it's become, or as ubiquitous as it's become, or extreme. And you were sort of uh, telling us how bad it could be at that time uh, in a way that I think was maybe oracular. So what's your attitude toward the work that you lay down through research and hard work and then the sense of looking back at the work because you are prognosticating a bit in both those examples I gave
1: well, it's so funny I you know I didn't think I was prognosticating I thought I was kind of describing. Uh, the world as it was at that time. Oh, you were doing um, that
0: as well. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah. But it's funny, I, um, mostly I go back and I look at, I mean, I don't really go back and look at my early books because I was such a baby writer um, that I'm often just, you know, I just start editing it in my head, you know, which I do with every book immediately after I've written it and I have to go and, you know, do readings or talks. I think, oh my God, why did I put that comma there? You know, I, I just, I'm a relentless uh, self-editor. Um, so it's it's never the writing is never as good as I want it to be, especially in those uh, early books. Um, But, you know, I think with Pornified, um, which was the subtitle is very long about um, how pornography is transforming our lives, our marriages, our relationships, our children. Um, That book, I think, was written in, well, I know it was written in 2005, but I think it was written at a moment where a lot of people were not open to hearing about that. Um, It was really looking at the early effects of Uh, pornography and the internet on pornography and on patterns of consumption and what that was doing to people's self-image, to their sexuality, to um, their uh, personal sex life and their interpersonal sex lives, and, um, and to children who were exposed to pornography. And it was coming again from a free speech and liberal point of view and was largely based on Interviews with pornography users of all ages and all kinds. Um, and the reception at the time, I think, was uh, kind of black and white, um, although there were some great uh, reviews, including from the San Francisco Chronicle, which called it a Kinsey report of our time, for which I will always be grateful for. Um, uh John Muallam, who is now a writer for The New York Times Magazine, wrote that review and they named it one of the 10 best books of the year. But I was also very harshly criticized as, uh, you know, there was a paper that put my photograph and underneath wrote prude um, for the photo caption as opposed to, you know, anyway, uh, not not uh, not subtle. Um, and I think that's
0: better than being called a, a fascist or a Nazi like you were. yes. For- the article about gender, transgender identity, excuse me.
1: Yeah, I don't think I've been called a Nazi yet, um, though, you know, again, would be kind of ironic, although not the first person of Jewish origin to be called a Nazi, to be sure. Um, but I have been called a fascist, which is, again, really uh, kind of amazing to me, Um, If a liberal uh, New Yorker is called a fascist, um, you know, then you just wonder, well, gosh, what does that make, I don't know? A, Maga trumpist well, uh, there
0: are those like d'angelo who think that liberal new yorkers are the real enemies they're the worst racists and they're you know uh somehow much more antithet- antithetical to the ideals that uh she and people in her camp and I, I don't know if it's worth characterizing as woke because that word is overused and it's misused and probably abused but you know what they're saying they're saying that you're the real enemy somehow.
1: yeah um Well, we'll we'll leave that aside for a moment, but to go back to pornified, um, it is interesting that even some of my um, sort of harshest critics at the time have subsequently come back and said, wow, you know, you really were um, ahead of things on that. And, um, uh, you know, it just it it, I think people weren't really ready to hear that. Um, I think now, um, 18 years later, it's sort of. Indisputable in that era of Pornhub and all of that, we've just seen the repercussions that it has on, you know, the way in which young people learn about sexuality and um, learn about, you know, the difference between performance and 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 sex and you know, paid it sex and um, and real live sex, and you've seen that on the di- sort of sexual development of, of boys and then on girls as well.
0: Um, Excuse me, when when you write, in fact, you wrote a book called 100 Things We Lost uh, because of the Internet. One of the things we lost is that sense of perhaps a kind of sexual innocence. I mean, you could be nostalgic and overly sentimental about this, but we've gone into areas that we never would have imagined. I mean, in terms of uh, not only the pervasiveness of porn, but just the effect it has on so many lives and the transgressive nature of it as being something that's escalating all the time, pushing the envelope even more and more.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I didn't touch really on pornography in this, uh, in 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet, in part because with each book, I kind of feel like I go into a subject, I research it, I write about it, and then it's a, I it sort of feels out of my system. Um, and pornography was not and is not really a topic that I care to revisit because it was uh, quite intense in terms of uh, the reporting experience. Um, but what the books, those two books have in common and also with Parenting, Inc. and with The Starter Marriage is that I'm very interested in um, consumer culture and sort of the ways in which we are sold certain things um, and how we respond to those messages. So in The Starter Marriage, I talked a lot about the marriage industry and just the ideal of um, sort of uh, not just you know nuptials, but the kind of Fairy tale romance, soulmate uh, narrative, and and the impact that that has on young people in pornography. Obviously, it was looking at the pornography industry and particularly as reconceptualized by the internet and the effect that had on users with. Parenting Inc., that was really a look at how the child-rearing industry, the parenting industry, was kind of informing how people made decisions in terms of, you know, whether to let their child watch a Baby Einstein video, which, you know, as subsequent to the writing of that book was actually, you know, really D- 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 debunked and denounced and taken off the market, um, and then in a hundred things we've lost to the internet. One of my major points is that you know everything on the internet—products, services, websites, apps—all of it, all of it is products and services. It's just like a pair of jeans or like a new you know toy, and we have the decision whether or not to buy it or use it, even if it's quote unquote free. This is what we free. call
0: total commodification. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the internet is like none of it is free. It's all we know that, you know, a, a social media network might be free, free, but it takes up our time, it takes our data, it takes our soul, <laughs> our sanity, uh, whatever, you know, however it, it works on you. But it is a product that is using you um, uh, and uh, kind of taking something from you, even if it's not, you know, an actual, you know, cash transaction. Um, and we have the decision we have the ability to decide whether or not to buy into it or to buy it um so if you th- like when i think about those four kind of reported books um that's the sort of common thread that uh that connects them
0: well you're also uh really bringing up ideas that people have to grapple with i mean that really play in a very extraordinary way into their lives into their personal lives and all of those books, it seems to me, open eyes and really provide a lens for people where they can see their lives in in a different way and perhaps uh, benefit from that. One would assume and and hope. Uh, I think about maybe before the internet, we've lost some, lost a lot of mystique too. And in that book you talk about solitude and you talk about desks people used to have uh, about you know so many things that. Really, we just don't have anymore. We have to such and mystery, a degree.
1: You know, like when you say mystique, it's like the mystery, the idea yeah. of mystery, of not knowing, of not being able to, you know, Google something while you're watching TV. Like, where did I see that actor? Who were they? You know, what were they in? Or wait, what was the, who wrote the book that this thing is based on? Or I, I you know, it's just constant. Um, and I think particularly with sort of digital generation um, kids, they are watching always with their phone or some kind of device there um that is like used in tandem with whatever you you're you're watching so not just mystery then but of course focus um and um being really immersed in something i find um to be uh to be one of those those losses the ability to be in one place uh at one time only um it sounds very simple but our head is always in multiple places at a given moment just with the tabs that are open on our laptops, I mean, you, you see them there, so you know there's just this other stuff, and that's on top of you know the constant notifications. I, sometimes I think even you know the weather app, which I always keep um, sort of keyed into uh, where I am, where I might be commuting to where I may be planning to travel so I can look at what the weather's like, where members of my family are, so I know what the weather is like there. And I think, wow, you know, right now I'm in like essentially mentally, um, at least in terms of the weather, I'm in like five or six places at once.
0: Yeah, we've even lost boredom, I think you point out in that book, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, the possibility of luxuriating or sort of settling into a kind of boredom. I'm also struck by the fact that uh, – you know, you, you've you um, hit on something else here. The fact that people just don't read as much as they used to. I mean, they read off the internet or they read on social media and Facebook. I'm particularly thinking about children. And you wrote this book with Maria Russo to get kids to read more. And I know there's no formula. There's no easy way to get kids to read more. And you take it case by case. But I know there are a lot of people out there who would like some solid advice with, how can I get my kid just to read? You know, Yeah some kind of catalyst that could get my kid interested in reading or want to read or curious about reading?
1: So um, How to Raise a Reader was really written for parents and caregivers who want to cultivate um, that habit, that ability, that love in their children. And I would say that of those three things, ability, habit, and love, really – The last two are the ones that parents have any real influence on. And I think, you know, one thing we emphasized in that book is that school is where children learn how to read home is where children learn to love reading or to want to read. Um, And so one of the hardest things for parents um, and every parent knows this is to get your kid to do something that they don't want to do, to get them to eat broccoli, for example, to get them to put on, you know, tie their own shoelaces or to get them to remember to make their bed in the morning. Um, And so You really have to, you know, do a little bit of, you know, Mary Poppins-ish mind manipulation. You know, it's uh, reverse psychology and all the tricks that you use to try to get your kids to do something. And one of the reasons um, that you have to, you know, resort to that kind of subterfuge is that ultimately, ultimately, the desire to read has to be intrinsic, not extrinsic. You cannot um get your child to read by one thing, um, offering any incentives, right? Because if you offer incentives and you say like, oh, if you read this, you know, if you just finished this book, then you can plan the iPad for an hour. Well, then what are you telling the child? You're telling the child that the book is the spinach or the broccoli and the iPad is the really fun thing. Um, what you want to do is to make them, to get them, to see the books as a fun and rewarding thing, right, and not the iPad, um, and that is, I think, a it it's a less obvious um, uh, thing to have to do, but it's uh, and it's 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 not impossible, um, and I think there are little things you can do. And one of my favorite tricks uh, that that we did, and and with my kids, I have three kids, um, is when they were learning how to read and had learned to read. We always had, you know, kids had a bedtime. So the bedtime um, offer would be, you know, every kid tries to stay up later. Most kids want to stay up later. Um, So if they said, I don't want to go to bed and their bedtime was, say, 7.30 at that time, we would say, okay, well, you need to be in bed at 7.30. If you want to read quietly, you can stay up until 8. And that would be the incentive. And so the message to them is that reading is something that gets you to stay up late, right? You get to stay up late if you're reading. And reading is something desirable because you associate it with getting to stay up late. Um, and you ultimately turn the whole idea of staying up late into not staying up late, but can I just finish this one chapter? Can I just finish this book? Can I just finish this page? Um, and so the child is learning how, that that is something to that they want to do um and that is a reward it's a sign of being mature like you get to stay up late if you want to read and even if your child isn't reading at that time you know quote unquote reading Um, As it's strictly defined, even if they're just looking at a book, well, that's part of learning how to read. Um, But the mechanics of reading is something that I always urge parents to leave to school. And then, of course, if there is some kind of reading difficulty to other reading specialists, because that's the not fun part of reading, right? That is the not fun part. And you don't want kids to associate reading and home and you with the not fun aspects of struggling how to read. So, the important thing again for parents is to make that experience something that's an intrinsic desire and that is loving and rewarding. And I'll just give one other very practical tip, which is that always read to your child for as long as they want to be read to, even if they know how to read on their own. Because if you take away the very special ritual of reading with your child, reading to your child, from them as soon as they learn to read on their own, well, then you're effectively penalizing them and depriving them of something that may have been a really rewarding, cherished ritual, which was to snuggle up with their mom or their dad and have a story read to them. So you don't take that away once the child is able to read, especially when the child's in the early phases of learning how to read. And at that phase, what they are able to read in terms of the substance of the book is so far beneath the stories that they're able to appreciate and enjoy that if they're sitting there reading like cat sat on the mat but what they really want to hear is you reading aloud from you know little house in the prairie or um uh, you know a, any other uh, story that you know? Chronicles of Narnia. I'm I'm, I'm returning to some classics here because parents often really like to read to their kids the stories they enjoyed as a child. Or The Hobbit. Your six or seven year old can probably really enjoy hearing that aloud from you, even as they're struggling to read and then totally bored by The Cat Sat on the Mat. Well, that you want to keep doing that.
0: Creates, uh, and if anything, um, makes a greater bond, I think, uh, between parent and child. It's uh, it's sage advice, and uh, it's very valuable advice. I hope parents will—you uh, you, influenced a lot of parents with that book, I think, and had a great deal of impact. I know you did. Um, so kudos to you on that. Uh, so what's on your nightstand?
1: <laughs> well, uh, what I'm reading myself for pleasure right now is— um, And it's not gonna sound like a lot of fun, but I find it really interesting. Um, I'm reading a book called Year Zero by Ian Baruma, and it is about the year 1945. And I had read, I've lost track of time, but either last year or the year before, it was the year before, I read David Nassau's The Last Million, which was about the last million refugees left in, um, mostly in Germany, but in Europe, at the end of World War II and the fact that they didn't have many of them anywhere that they belonged, wanted to go, were able to travel to. They were kind of left without a country. And that book about these displaced people, these DPS, was really uh, fascinating. And the repercussions, of course, exist up until today. For example, in Ukraine, you had many Ukrainians who were fleeing Stalin, went to the West landed in Germany or in German-controlled areas, um, then enrolled in the German Army military, which of course was the Nazi regime. So they were effectively Nazi soldiers in order to escape Stalin. So of course, Germany then loses the war. Germany wants them out of there. They're not Germans. They could go back to Ukraine, but Ukraine now is um, controlled by Stalin. And so they are going back quote, unquote, home to Ukraine, but also to certain death, um, in all likelihood, at the very least to exile in Siberia, because they are war criminals in the eyes of Stalinist, uh, the Stalinist Soviet Union. So um, that's just one example. In any case, that Putin is
0: still saying there are Nazis in Ukraine,
1: right? Right, right. Well, and, you know, some of those Ukrainians were willing participants, willing collaborators in the Nazis. And, And how do you then at the end of the war kind of Un, uh, un, uh, try to untangle, well, who here was a collaborator, who was only collaborating because they had to, or they had no choice, who, um, you know, there were all these um, disputed areas. And that's really also where you get into the Ian Baruma's book, which all these, you know, regions like Silesia, you know, in Southern Poland, these areas that were sort of between countries or that had a variety, you know, they were multi-ethnic countries that then were being um, controlled by one dominating force. So you would have areas, especially in the former Yugoslavia in um, Eastern Europe. Places that had, you know, been once part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where things just really hadn't all fit together, and you know, obviously we know what ended up happening happening with Yugoslavia, but um, you know, there were regions where you would have Slovenians and Polish, you know, people, and um, some Jews, and then Germans, and uh, really trying to figure out like who belongs here, um, and then the other interesting thing. Well a few th- interesting things about the uh Ian Baruma's book one is that he takes a real global uh look at this at 1945 and he is of course Dutch but has written and spent a lot of time in Asia. I think the first book I read by him was uh God's Dust um, which was about travels in Asia in the 90s. I think it was maybe written in 89 but I read it in the early 90s and he spent a lot of time in Japan and so the book, um, his book really looks at 1945, not just in Europe, but then also in all the, you know, the Pacific theater and looking at, um, you know, Dutch controlled Indonesia. And I think when you're studying history in high school and then even in college, you know, we we learn World War II and then the war ends, right? And then the next sort of chapter that you learn is the Cold War, or you might go into a specific region, learn about the Korean War, learn about the Chinese Revolution and, you know, Mao's Revolution in, in China. You might read about... um the Vietnam War. But it's almost as if each of these, these histories are taught like a book, like with a chapter, you know, with a beginning, a middle and an end. And the end of 19, uh, of World War II, Paruma shows in this book, was a lot messier than we tend to realize, or at least I realize, you know, like you had places like, you know, countries in Europe, I think it was in France, 15,000 deaths after the war. Because, of course, there were all these conflicts that remained between those who had, you know, collaborated with the Vichy government and those who hadn't and those who had hid people away. And you had lots of petty vengeances and all of these people's courts set up where, you know, sometimes it was just um, two neighbors who hated each other trying to, you know, eke out revenge on on, on one another. And then other times, you know, there were legitimate, legitimate uh, causes of grievance. And in Countries in Europe and in the Netherlands, for example, women who had slept with uh Germans, with uh the Nazi occupants, uh were um they were shaved, they were tarred and feathered, they were often publicly beaten, in some cases killed. Um, and all of this happened after the glorious victory of, you know, the the the, the end of the war. So, um so I I that's what I'm reading right now. I've got yeah. about Forty Wait, pages left. Have you read it?
0: I, I've not. No, but I've read certainly a lot from that historical period, and it's a you've you've whetted my appetite, <laughs> it certainly piqued my interest in reading that book. So thank you for that. And we're getting some questions, and I want to go to the questions now. Uh, here's Bill in Buffalo who says, "How do you think AI will impact book creation?"
1: Oh, you know, I'm one of those people who I, I, ta- you know, I'm not an early adopter. I tend to be a tech skeptic. I um, and I haven't fully weighed into all of the, you know, into the subject in depth and a little bit, a little bit because I kind of want to wait for that first wave of hype to kind of um, recede a little bit. It's, it, you know, I, I, I felt the same way about crypto. I thought, well, I'm going to ignore it until, you know, um, for a year or two, and then I'll sit down and try to figure this thing out, um, which I then did. And then, of course, you know, crypto kind of blew up. Um, but uh, so I, I can't say that I know a huge amount about it, but my temperamental um, sort of gut reaction is I don't think that it will ever replace um, creative or strong writing. Um, I think that it might end up replacing certain kinds of commodity writing, you know, certain things like summaries of books. Um, but to write a novel from scratch with just AI, even just generative AI, I don't I don't feel particularly threatened by that.
0: I think also, I remember your book about Bob and Bob's book of books. It was just your and bibliophilia as a young person and all the books you were drawn to and how book reading changed your life, there's a, there's a whole sense in there of just the enjoyment of having a book in your hand, of, of the interaction with the text and all that that entails. And that's going through some real changes now because of technology. I mean, put, put AI aside, uh, Alex wants to know, in fact, do you think listening to books has a different cognitive result than reading?
1: Oh, I think listening to books is great. I I really do. I don't like reading a book on a screen. I In fact, that feels like a punishment to me, but... You don't um, use Kindle at all? No, no, I don't. I really like a physical book. Um, me too. I don't care if it's heavy. Uh, I don't care if the typeface is small. I'll, I'll accommodate myself to that object. Um, but... Uh, the, an audiobook, I think, is an amazing thing. And I actually think it's a, it, it requires a very different skill set. Um, it's interesting because people who have trouble reading, whether it's dyslexia or, you know, processing disorder, whatever it might be, and, and read audio, you know, listen to audiobooks, develop their own skill. Even they might have a deficit in one area, but then really develop a strong listening and focus skill. Um, and for me, though I love audiobooks, um, I find it requires enormous concentration um, because uh, I tend to be an easily distracted reader even when I'm reading on the page. Um, And there is no, you you know, if you're reading something complicated or listening to something complicated um, or, uh, you know, uh, like a long biography, if you sort of loop out, you know, you tune out for a little bit, you can get completely lost. So I think um, it's a skill to listen to an audiobook. It's it's not a downgrade in any way. And I also think narrators can bring something really spectacular to um, to that experience.
0: I th- agree with you on that last sentence, and particularly who the narrator is. You know, you have all these great actors doing audiobooks and so forth. But for some reason, I like the print on the page. I like to hold the book uh It's a different experience for me uh, than just hearing the book. Or, I don't know. In fact, here's another question from Susan in Baltimore. But before I get to that question, I want to get to another question from Los Angeles from Frank, who says, You mentioned ways to inspire children to read. What are ways to inspire adults to read more?
1: (laughs) Well, here's an inspiration um, for fathers. Um, And it is going a little bit back to children, but I just want to mention this, um, which is that um, girls and boys. Both say that their fathers read less often to them than their mothers, which is why the first picture book I wrote, Rectangle Time, was about a a, a father and a a son reading together, Um, and that they um, observe their father's reading less often than they saw their mother's reading. And I think modeling a joy uh, in reading and a habit of reading is really important to kids of both sexes. So... Uh, so that's one motivation. If you have children in your life, whether they're kids or grandchildren or um, nieces or nephews, it's it's motivating to them for you to read. So that can be a motivation for you. But I also think that um, here's, why I, here's why I think storytelling in book form is more powerful than storytelling in any other format. And I, I say this as someone who loves theater, TV films. So this is not to denigrate them. But um, when you are reading, and I will return to uh, Harry Potter, um, since you brought that book up earlier, if you're reading Harry Potter um, for the first time, you are conjuring in your mind what all these spells look like. You have an image of what Harry Potter looks like. Even if there's some illustrations on the page, you're coming up with your own idea of how he sounds and what Hogwarts looks like. And you're creating this whole world in your in your mind. If you see the film, you are seeing the actors' rendition of uh, the characters in the book. You're seeing, um, and it's excellent. But Alan Rick's you know version of Snape, you're seeing. Um, you know, Helena Bonham Carter's version of Bellatrix Lestrange, you're seeing the cinematographers and the set designers and the directors, You're they're all imposing their ideas on that story. Whereas when you're reading it, you're creating it all yourself. So I think that reading fundamentally, because the writer and the reader are conjuring a world together, it's a creative an active um, exercise on the part of the reader as much as it is on a part of the writer. And that's why we all read books in such very different ways, because we're all bringing our own vision, our own um, imagination to that story. And that is also why I think books often can linger with us Longer because it requires more of an act of participation on the part of the reader. And then the story is somehow becomes yours as much as it is the writer's. And when you talk to writers, you know, you'll often find that t- t- authors will have readers describe their own books to them in ways that completely differ from what the author intended um you know like a reader could come up to an author or to, after a book reading and say like i love this book i just love that it was about you know mentoring and inspiration and the author might sit there thinking what this is a book about revenge you know like i didn't write a book about mentorship but, but again if the reader took it that way then that's the that's the book they read
0: That so book is almost different. like a Rorschach you know it's almost yeah. like uh, and the the mistake too many people make i think is Somehow a film doesn't necessarily translate from a book and they expect some kind of translation that will give them even a deeper sense of what that book is trying to convey because they're seeing it visually. I think that can be sort of wrong-headed, but... There's something well, about, that's why so
1: many, you know, readers I think feel disappointed with a film version or a book version because it doesn't meet what they imagine. That's
0: exactly right. And although I, recently I found myself thinking about Kundera's great novel, *The Unbearable Lightness of Being*. But I think Phil Kaufman took that novel because he's a literary guy. He's also a friend of mine. He took that novel and he turned it into something. Even greater than it was, and I'm not trying to in any way diminish Kundera, but that's rare. I think, particularly from the move from we could do a whole hour just on you know talking about yeah uh, moving things into cinema and all that. It's funny you mentioned again J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter because I interviewed many years ago Ursula Le Guin, and she thought that Rowling actually plagiarized her. That's a whole other topic for us too. But really, what I want to do is get to a lot of questions that are coming in. Uh, And Susan, I will get to your question, but I want to hold it off on it for a bit and get to some of the rest of these. And thank you, all of you who are sending questions in. This is from Reed, who writes, My daughter and I listened to many books together, including The Golden Compass and Summerland, while playing catch with a squishy ball indoors, and all of Harry Potter while on road trips. I appreciate her support. That's you, Pamela, for audiobooks. Thank you for that, Reed. And this is from Tommy in St. Paul, who says, Where are your favorite places to read? I'm easily distracted.
1: Oh, you know, I I mean, you have to have your phone in another room. And ideally, uh, you know, if you have a house with two floors, you know, put it on a different floor. I lived in a brownstone once uh, in Harlem that was five stories. And I would leave my phone, you know, five floors away with the computer there. It really, you want a place that's free as best you can um of distractions and i also really love and i no longer fight it i love napping when i read um so if i fall asleep well now you know reading i actually think that's a great kind of joy um but i do read uh I will say this, and I know it's it's not the most environmentally friendly thing to admit to, but I love a fire. And so as soon as the weather becomes fireplace weather, my favorite thing to do at night is to sit in the living room. We don't have TVs or computers there in front of the fire and read.
0: Here's Colin who says, how can an adult learn to read more quickly if we find our reading rate is too slow? And that is discouraging to pick up a book in the first place. Uh, Evelyn Wood was supposed to be, you know, the one to transform all of us. Remember that, uh, Evelyn Wood speed reading, and people were joking about you go through Tolstoy in, you know, a half hour, that sort of thing. But any ideas along those lines? And see, you're still associated to a great extent with reading and books, and people want to find out that kind of wisdom from you. Any ways to read more quickly? Is that even advisable? I like to read slowly because well, I like to enjoy it. Yeah, I,
1: I am read. a slow reader, so I am a very slow reader, and, um, and I wish I read more quickly, but I don't, um, and I don't try to because, as you just said, uh, Michael, it's, you know, you read at your own pace. It's really about appreciation, and um, I find You know, sometimes when I'm tired, I will have, quote unquote, read like a page and absorb nothing. And I realized my mind was wandering. I will go back and read it, particularly if I'm reading something, you know, complicated, which for me is philosophy usually. Um, But, uh, you know, anything philosophical or abstract. And I read it again. And I just figure, you know what? I'm reading with intent, you know, with intention. And... um, the author probably put a lot into it. And so if nothing else, you're rewarding the writing itself by taking it as it comes for you at your own pace.
0: What about when you read something and you just don't like it? I think you said you didn't like catcher in the rye, which makes you yeah. unusual in many ways. And you said the same, th- said the same thing about, uh, uh, I believe Kerouac's book uh, on the road that you didn't like it. Um, and I was surprised yeah. also to read, yeah. especially for someone who quotes Shel Silverstein, um, that you don't particularly find an affinity with poetry. You say, I'll never understand poetry. I'll never, I'll never understand Ryan Seacrest, but you'll never understand poetry. Uh, so these are things that you avoid or you make yourself want to be more acquainted with and push yourself on.
1: Well, I love children's poetry, so it might just be that I have a very atro- uh, atrophied or you know immature sense of, of poetry. And I will sometimes read poetry, and and um, you know by happenstance I'll come across something and really appreciate it. But I don't tend to pick it up on my own. Um, and the closest that I get, you know, I've been was recently. Reading bits of the Canterbury Tales, which obviously is in poetry, but was written in a kind of of a verse. did you read it in um, middle
0: English or you read the translation to modern english
1: well, it's no i was i I had gotten very into a podcast on the history of English, so I was reading it oh, right. in the Norton anthologie's form, which is you know um I I it is. believe yeah. it is Middle English, um, but it it is updated a little bit. Um, there's certainly a lot of notes, and actually, if you're interested in the language, it and it's fascinating just to read it in that way. In the same way that it's interesting to read Shakespearean English, which of course, is written in modern English. Well, actually, in, they call—forgive me—my
0: English professor um, had, but they call Shakespearean English now pre-modern. Uh, yeah, they do because it's Elizabethan. Oh, and, do they? certainly not exactly like modern English by any stretch, but they use that word specifically, pre-modern.
1: Uh, well, I'm, I'm really interested in the evolution of language, so yeah, I find You're that interested that in so many but, things. Um, I mean, it
0: makes you a great opinion writer. The- uh, I mean, for, for the opinion page, we <laughs> are lucky to have you. Uh, and uh, we share that. It's one of the fascinating uh, things about life that you can be curious about so many things and just keep learning and learning because it's infinite. And in that spirit, Susan from Baltimore wants to know, seem to me a good way for us to put a capstone on a lot of this what are some of the books that are next on your reading list
1: oh well the next ones that i'm reading for fun are the second and third books of a trilogy that i began um uh earlier this year which was um uh the three body problem um by um oh gosh i'm forgetting his name um shu oh okay i can't remember um but
0: someone will just Google it. Yes, and find
1: uh, it. the author is is Chinese, and it's a science fiction trilogy. And so, I the second and third volumes my son had uh, with him. He was in India, and he brought them back. So that's my. I'm I'm looking forward to reading them. There's a lot of work reading I want to do this fall, so I might not get to those two until uh, until fireplace season. But I I usually have on my um. It's not my nightstand. It's the, I have a wall-length book uh, shelves in my bedroom, and I have these ones that I place horizontally on the shelf, which are my stand-in for a nightstand. And there's usually about books there, and I get so excited about the idea of reading them, and I shuffle those piles like while I'm reading other books, just in anticipation. And then when I get to the moment where I finally am, ha- you know, allowed to read another book for fun. Um, I uh, then pick whichever one feels. Well, right your omnivorous reading has
0: always impressed me and continues to impress me. And now your opinion pieces do. And uh, I'm glad that you're on that staff. And uh, I wish the best for you. I want to thank all who were with us for this week's episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, which can be heard on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. And if you have not yet done so, please think about joining our growing community simply by going to graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. And a special thanks to the great Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team of Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Jeff, and to this episode's special guest, who you can and should read whenever and however you can get on the opinion page of the New York Times, Pamela Paul. Thank you, Pamela.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: I'm Michael Krasny.
1: Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.